Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today for our series on women in the judiciary is Judge Soman Naidu, who is a permanent judge of the Free State High Court. Welcome to the show, Judge Naidu. Thank you very much, Dr. Amalea. I think it's easier to say Dr. Amalea. <laughs> Judge Naidu, this series for me is one that we have on an annual basis, and it's always important because I really feel that through legislative enablement that women have really been able to achieve. And especially when women are driving the legal process or applying pressure. And I'm often reminded when I have these thought moments of a quote by Eleanor Roosevelt, who said, you must do the things you think you cannot do. So with that said, if we can kick off with the show, nearly a decade ago, you were appointed as a judge of the Free State High Court, 2014. You previously served as a magistrate in the Durban District High Court from 1998. And during that period, you also served as the deputy head of office and head of both the criminal and family divisions of the court. Also the civil, the civil courts as well. And the civil courts. Tell us about that period. It was an exciting time. I I was an attorney for about 12 years after I finished um, university. I went through the process of articles. I joined a firm um, of attorneys. And thereafter, the the senior partner left and somebody else joined us just before he left. And we continued. So I practiced for about 12 years in total. Um, And then I worked for a short stint in the corporate world as a legal advisor to um, what was now what is now business partners. They were the small business development corporation at that time. And then from there, I went into practice on my own again in a small north coast town in in KZN called Devlin. Quite frankly, the biggest mistake I made was moving from Durban to there because a practice in Durban, there's so much variety. I did a lot of commercial and civil work and it wasn't like that in Verlum. Uh, But then from there, the road took me to the Justice Department and I became a prosecutor. And then I was appointed as a magistrate and and went up the ranks there until I ended up as a senior magistrate and deputy head of office. Casting your mind back, what was it that triggered you to pursue a career in law? You know, I grew up when apartheid was in full force. Um, and as a child, when the opportunity arose, I mean, we grew up, I grew up poor, in a poor family. Um, and sometimes it was a treat to go to the beach or to the park. Um, and we could only go to certain beaches. And I, I couldn't understand that. When we got to the park, my mom would say, no, not that entrance. We've got, I said, but this entrance is right here. Why, why must we walk all the way around it? She said, just be quiet and come. So, you know, and I would go, but I was, I was young. I must have been about five, six um, years old at the time. And I, I couldn't understand this. And then when we're in the park, you know, children run like crazy in a park and you were always stopped from going to certain sections. You, you could not sit on a particular bench. You could, you could only sit in a particular place. And 
And such were my experiences at the cinemas. We couldn't go to certain cinemas. You only could go to cinema in a certain street and so on or certain parts of town. And, and it was like that with many, many aspects of our life. And my parents, well, look, they never had much schooling, um, but they didn't know how to explain this to us, and especially to me. And I was one who questioned everything. I think I annoyed the hell out of my mother with my questions. And why? Why must we do this? Why can't I do that? And then one day she said to me, well, that's the law. I said, what's the law? What does that mean? And she said, no, the law is the government makes these laws and we have to obey. So I said, but why can't I go here? I'm also a child. I can see these children there. Why can't I go there? And she says, that's the law. You must just follow it. And I think that that is basically where I got this. I, I was too young. I didn't have the intellectual maturity. I didn't have the vocabulary to to, to put into words what I was feeling. But later on, when I was able to, to think back on that and what I felt was anger, what I felt was a deep sense of being treated unfairly and injustice, what I felt was injustice. And I think, you know, this the concept of the law, I said, well, if that is the law, then it's unfair. I must do something about it. And I need to be involved. And I think that's where it stemmed from. My passion for the law, to understand what is this thing called the law. And if it's governing citizens, why are some citizens treated differently to me? Am I not a citizen? Am I not worthy? You know, and, and of course, as one gets older, then one realizes it's actually the color of your skin that dictates where you can go and what you can do. But deep within me, I know that I'm capable of doing anything that anyone else can. Why? Why must I be held back? And it's these questions, it's that feeling when I was older and able to, to try and verbalize it and able to put my thoughts into some sort of order as I became more mature and older. But it must have started when I was five, six years old and this feeling of terrible injustice, which was brought about by this thing called the law that triggered my interest and, and my curiosity and the, the desire to actually know what the law is, to get involved and see why it is that it is treating people unfairly. It's a great story. You really highlight the injustices that so many people of our country experienced yes. and endured. Having gone into the legal field, does that make you feel better, more confident of driving change, of bringing about equality to all? Yes. And, and I think, you know, it's important. And, and especially in the position that a judge holds, you have a position of tremendous influence. You, you affect people's lives daily. And how you apply the law is, is incredibly important because not only must you apply it in a way that is pertinent and relevant to that person, but it must have meaning for that person. And 
at the same time, you must bring about justice and fairness. So it, it is important. And I've tried in my own little space to do as much of that as I possibly can, to develop people, to, to empower people. And as I got older, it was women's rights. You know, that same injustice about the way women were treated triggered my my interest in empowering women and getting involved in projects or organizations that dealt with women's rights and empowering women. When we spoke at the beginning, you mentioned that you you started your own practice and thinking about the injustices the women experience, it was kind of, a, I guess, a, a double-edged sword for you. Maybe let's say Absolutely. a triple-edged sword. Race and gender. <laughs> race and gender and going into a masculine profession. Very much so. I, I It was such a male-dominated world. When I started out as a young attorney, I was the only woman doing criminal work. It was a rarity to see a woman in doing criminal work at that stage, but I did a fair amount of criminal work as well as, as commercial and civil work. Um, and, you know, for me, um, I always wore my, my red dot, as you can see, you know, which says I'm a married Hindu woman. And that, that was something that blew people away. What was this? And I don't know whether they felt that if you wore the dot, you were not as intelligent as you should be, you know. And I experienced that as well. And, um, you know, in court, magistrates, for instance, as a young attorney looked at me and thought, Oh, what does she know? You know, and, um, until I showed them what I know. And, and you, you, you have these barriers all along the way. But for me, I realized that you've got to make your work speak for itself, the quality of your work. You've got to make your conduct, the manner in which you carry yourself, count. And it did. You know, um, they say you can't keep a good woman down for long. And I made that a reality to, for them to understand. I put people in a position where they could not deny the merit of your work. They could not deny your worth. And I think that's important. That's a great piece of advice. Hindsight, though, is often 2020 vision. If you had an opportunity to redo anything, how would you change it? Professionally, I believe that every experience that I've had has taught me a lesson, has empowered me in some way, and has taught me how not to make the same mistakes. Um, so, you know, professionally, I believe that I've been enriched and empowered by those very experiences and possibly some of the mistakes that I made. So I, I don't think much in terms of my professional journey that I would change because I, I, I value each of those experiences. It, is, it has molded me into the kind of person that I, I believe I am today. You know, you become more, more compassionate, you become more understanding, you become more sensitive. As a young magistrate, we had social context training, diversity training, which opened my eyes to many, many things. And in order to be effective, especially as a judicial officer, you've got to have a deep understanding and appreciation of context, social, economic, political context, and diversity. But on a personal level, I suppose my professional journey took me away from home a lot, um, I didn't spend maybe as much time with my kids as I, I would have liked to. You know, I missed birthdays, I missed important events at school and so on. Maybe that I would change a bit and I would try and go back and spend a little more time with them. But 
I think I tried to to and and I'm hope that I succeeded to some extent is balance work with family and and raise my kids to the people that I'm proud of today. Thanks for sharing that reflection. And I also think that part of the <clears throat> dynamic with women's empowerment and activism is also demonstrating this balance between work and home. Yes. But <clears throat> at the same time, teaching those values to your children to know that yes. they can be independent, that women can work, and look at what my mom is doing. Yes, and and I'm glad that my daughter's inherited a lot of that. And and as I said, you know, kids growing up drive you mad and you you wonder these values that you treat, teach these children, has it even sunk in? Has it had an impact? But now you see it as they've now grown up. They are adults, both professionals. You see it and you know, it makes you so proud. Yes, you're proud of the job, the good job, the, the salary they earn. You're proud that they have homes. But the proudest thing is the human beings that they've become. And prouder still is that it's those values that you taught them as they were growing up that are manifesting now. So I think that's important. Values are incredibly important. And I'm sure as you as you were talking and you were talking about the development of your professional journey and each skill that you acquire, whether that's a technical skill or a soft skill that comes into Mm. play, I'm sure has has contributed to the way that you judge and govern your, yes, your cases. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about a few of the most impactful cases that you've presided over and and why they why they matter so much to you? Well, it it started when I was a prosecutor. I did a matter involving um drugs, syndicate crime, you know, involving drugs. And it's the first time that I encountered something like that, where part of the evidence was uh, recorded telephone calls and, and voice voice evidence. And I think yeah, I might have been one of the first prosecutors who managed to persuade the, the Justice Department to engage one of the only voice experts they were in the country at the time. At tremendous cost. You know, I, I had to almost become a voice expert. I spent an enormous amount of time with him to understand this is a very new and strange field to me. And I spent a lot of time interviewing him, spent a lot of time understanding his work in order that I may prosecute properly. That case ne- was never completed because my accused person started dying one after the other. Um, There were five of them, and eventually I ended up with one, and then the magistrate was murdered. But in the course of the many months over which the trial ran, I dealt with many aspects of law, and we had what we call trials within a trial to decide on specific aspects. There were seven of them, and I got judgment in my favor in all seven of them. And what was important about that is that even though the matter was not completed, as far as it went, it had a positive impact for other prosecutors who were then calling me from different parts of the country to ask about voice evidence. Um, And then those various aspects of law that were the subject matter of trials within a trial. As I said, it was sad that we never completed it. And then I got appointed to the bench. So um, that was one of the earlier cases. And then as a judge, there were many matters that, you know, I dealt with, especially involving the abuse of women, where, again, your ability to be fair 
and your ability to bring justice to bear, but also send out a message that that is simply not going to be tolerated. I think and many of my judgments in those areas have been followed by my colleagues. Um, and then I had a large mining matter, uh, illegal mining involving illegal miners as well, uh, where I dealt extensively with various aspects of the law. And I think especially in that field of dealing with illegal miners, um, some of the aspects of law that I dealt with have also been followed by colleagues and, and other judges. And more recently, I think a year ago, I dealt with a matter where certain high-profile paid figures, including politicians, were charged criminally for various things. And um, then they brought civil applications before me to try and quash charges. Um, and I understand that my judgment in that matter has been followed in other divisions as well. So, you know, I'd like to think I've contributed in some way. You've had such a diversity of, of cases and you, you've highlighted yes. a few of them for us today. But as you were ch talking, I was thinking that really in your position, you often come face to face with the worst aspects of humanity. Absolutely. At the same time, you've you've got to be impartial to meter out mm. justice. I would also imagine that this takes a, a toll on you personally. Tell us about some of the coping mechanisms that you use to to manage your well being. It's very hard, um, and for a very long time, you know, we didn't have anything for the judiciary in terms of debriefing, in terms of wellness. Um, and, and as head of the family courts, I saw that with, for instance, domestic violence matters uh, where, you know, magistrates couldn't cope. And I took initiatives to try and debrief them on a one on one basis and so on. Um, a few years ago, I think the, the chief justice put together a draft policy on wellness. Uh, we attended a few presentations where they had psychologists and psychiatrists, for instance, that you could call if if you felt a bit overwhelmed. Because with the magistrates, I noticed that that secondary trauma was spilling over into their personal lives as well. And, you know, one had to try and debrief them. And I, I think I learned many lessons from from helping them as well and coping. You know, you you have to constantly self-talk and say to yourself, this is, is horrible, it's gruesome. Because sometimes young people in the age group of your children commis, commit the most heinous crimes. And the, the extent of the violence is, is so overwhelming sometimes. You know, and you've got to self-talk. But that is also where your training in diversity, your training in social context, it, it makes you take a step back. Where does this person come from? Why is he behaving that way? And and you you try to understand it. And in your own understanding, you, you have to debrief yourself. Um, and I mean, of course, you know, I, I watch silly programs on TV that doesn't require something, you know, doesn't require thinking. Just just mindlessly watch something to try and switch off. Um, or read. In, in my school days, I used to read what my my English teacher used to call shilling shockers and penny thrillers, you know, the Mills and Boone novels. I used to read that to switch off. And I do similar things now, but I think it's a lot of self-talk to remind yourself what your role is, to remind yourself 
what you have to achieve in that. As reprehensible as some of those offenses are, you have to look behind that at the offender. Who is he? Where does he come from? And why would he do this? Because that informs the kind of sentence as well that you meet out. You know, to, to give you a very basic example, a woman in Santon is not going to experience the law in the same way as a black woman in a semi-rural area. If you give the woman in Santon a fine of, of a thousand rand, it's nothing for her. But if you do the same to the woman from the rural area, it, it is disastrous for her. Where is she going to get a thousand rand? That's, that's almost a, a month's worth of food for her. So, you know, that is what I take into account in my self-talk, in my debriefing. And at the end of it, I say, I've got to be happy that I have done justice, not only in applying the law, but justice to the person that is in front of me. And, and that's how I try to cope. With, with it. And we, we see the most horrible crimes. I can only imagine the, the types of cases and things that you, mm-hmm. you must have seen and the way mm-hmm. that you're able to bring in the empathy and bring in the context and see behind the person where they come from yeah. and interplay that into the way that you mm-hmm. express your judgment. So, yes, it's so easy to vilify and demonize somebody like that. But what motivates a 25-year-old to rape a woman much older than him, gouge out her eyes, and then kill her. What does that? And and one has got to have that deep understanding of human nature, which is informed by your background. Where does it come from? When you have that understanding and you know in your mind you have done justice, it helps you to cope a little better. Thanks for sharing some of your techniques and and tricks to to coping. (laughs) What I've taken out of today's conversation and also with your other colleagues is that the issue of that the world is changing all of, all of the time and yes. that in order to accommodate those changes or, or maybe to push and propel those changes, that the law uh-huh. changes too. In your view, what would you say have been some of the most important recent laws or, or reforms that have passed that have been in the best interests of women? Well, let's start with the Constitution. I mean, that lays the ground rules. And if you look at, especially in women's rights, I mean, you, if you look at the, the right to equality, the the right to life, the right to freedom and security in person, those are all dealing with human rights, which are essentially women's rights. Because if you look at that, you know, with gender-based violence being what the president has referred to as the second pandemic, um, that we start with the constitution. It lays down the ground rules and, and emanating from that, you know, we would have then, for instance, the Domestic Violence Act, which has been around a while. Um, you have employment equity. Um, you would have the, the, the Sexual Offenses Act dealing with rape, where they've expanded the meaning of rape. A sexual assault has an expanded meaning, you know, certain acts which previously would not have qualified as either rape or sexual assault do now. So, you know, that has expanded the protection because rape victims are largely women or, or for the most part, women or girl children. 
although more and more I find males and male children also becoming victims. But it, it has expanded the meaning of rape and sexual assault, which then widens the protection that, that one can give. And I think recently there's the National um, Coalition on Gender-Based Violence and Femicide Bill, uh, last year, this bill was introduced, and they're looking to to make that law. So I, I think if one looks at, like the Domestic Violence Act, the Constitution, Sexual Offences Act, and all the related legislation, there is protection for, for vulnerable people and women. But unfortunately, gender-based violence, in spite of, of that legislation, has just skyrocketed. And that's the point that I wanted to ask now. We have paper-based <laughs> protection, but it doesn't prevent the physical acts from happening. Yes. Given your experiences, what do you think we can do, I, I, I don't know, as a, as a social reform to that these acts of injustice just don't happen? It's a lot of awareness and education. We've got to ensure that people unlearn social practices or cultural practices or, or norms within that particular society, you know, certain beliefs which which really have no foundation in reality and, and truth. Um, and I think there have been a number of organizations that are targeting that, the education, awareness raising, and, and debunking certain beliefs and myths which lead to these acts of violence. While there are a lot of efforts, I think it, we've got to step up with, with those kind of, um, the law alone cannot, cannot do it. One has to tackle the social aspect, the cultural aspect, and try and bring about that change, an attitudinal change. And, and, you know, the respect for the law will obviously follow the attitudinal change and the, awareness and understanding that what you have been doing is wrong. Um, and, and it's it's from a, a point of education and awareness that will follow with the, the respect of the law, I think. Judge Nadia, we've spoken about the work that you do, the, the, the types of interventions that have been put in place. Um, one point that I wanted to tap onto now is almost, I guess, your, your development and development of other women judges in the country. I know that you're a long-standing member of the South African chapter of the International Association of Women Judges. You've served as the organization's deputy president, national treasurer, as well as yes. vice president of programs and publications. Mm -hmm. What would you say have been some of the benefits or opportunities that you've been exposed to throughout your involvement with the association? Well, you know, the, for, for one thing, um, with our outreach work, it it brings acute awareness of how dire the situation some women find themselves in and the need for us to use our positions as judicial officers to try and influence change in, in the lives of those women. Um, and that comes with not just the outreach programs that we do. Um, initially, you know, we would for instance, be involved in the Take a Girl Child to Work uh, program. We would go out into communities, do awareness raising lectures and talks and interactions. But we have developed many programs along the way. And the opportunities for us there, for instance, mentorship. Uh, mentorship is a big thing in, in the chapter. 
Uh, we do it um, mentoring programs with university students, law students, as well as young attorneys, for instance, people who are just about to enter and who have just entered the profession. It gives one that opportunity to work with these young women to empower them, give them guidance, mentor them, take them through what the legal profession entails and also guide them to the various avenues within the profession that that is open to them. It also helped build networks. You know, an organization um, like the South African chapter, which is affiliated to the international body in Washington, as well as to to, uh, interacting with sister chapters on the continent and in the world, it builds tremendous networks. And that is so important in career development. It's so important in personal development that you have these networks. And and the International Association of Women Judges, and specifically the South African chapter, has afforded us as members that opportunity which we are then able to pass on to the younger ones coming into the profession and hopefully one day will be members of the chapter as well. I think associations are incredibly important for all of those dynamics that you shared, especially the networking facet and knowledge sharing dynamic. Mm. You spoke a bit about law students and also sharing about opportunities for them down, down the line. Given all of your experiences, what advice would you give to law students who are aspiring to be judges or perhaps work in the legal profession in another avenue? The first thing that they've got to understand is you have got to give 100% commitment to that goal. So in order to do that, you identify your goal, first of all. Where is it that you want to go and what is it you want to do? And you work towards that. As I said, there's so many avenues within the legal profession, but to get to be a judge, Usually you get into practice either as an attorney or an advocate after university. You build up your experience base, your skill levels, and the way you do that is get involved with programs, for instance, that are offered by the the IAWJ uh, or other sister organizations. Um, attach yourself to women in, in the profession that you look up to or who have achieved and, and ask if they would mentor you. And I think most of them would readily say yes. We, each of our members, we've done it both as an organization and at a personal. I've done it for many years on a personal one-on-one level. Many of them are judges today. Many of them went from being attorneys to magistrates. And I am still in touch with them. I'm still giving them guidance. So, I would say to students, first identify your goal. Attach yourself to somebody you know that's going to assist you, mentor you, but commit yourself. Firstly, make sure that your studies are are your priority so that you get that technical qualification. And from there, commit yourself to the avenue in law that you want to follow. And as I said, if you want to be a judge, as a young article clerk, I accompanied my principal to the high court. And I used to see these judges sitting there and I used to be terrified of them uh, because they were stern and they were strict. They were all men in those days. But I said to myself, I'm going to be there one day and I'm going to do things differently to what you're doing because I don't bark at people and I will not say things that might border on insulting somebody. And that's what I used to observe 
with, with some of the judges, especially towards the women advocates. And I would say, I'm going to be there one day and I will definitely do things differently to what you're doing. But it was a long road and I, I, I realized that. But as I said, you know, with all the, the gender, the race and all of that, the, the one thing I dedicated myself to was the pursuit of excellence. And when you pursue excellence in everything you do, in the end, nobody will keep you down. You know, and, and when I was very little, somebody said to me, you can't make a dream come true if you don't have a dream. And to understand, to make that dream come true, it takes patience and hard work, a lot of hard work. So that's what I would say to law students. Don't be afraid to dream and don't be afraid to chase that dream, but you must work hard to do so. That is such great advice. And I think broadly applicable beyond just law students. You, yes, absolutely. I mean, you've, you've shared some of your values. Uh, one core takeout is, is excellence. Another for me is integrity. Another is doing things according to your standards and the way that you want to do them, not being yes. dictated by others. Yes. A question that I ask all my guests is about some of the factors that they feel have contributed to their success. Can you share with us what have been some of the, the core drivers of your success? Well, I agree with, you know, the, the commitment and dedication and all of that. And I'm no different. But what I'd like to add is humility, respect, and consideration, because those are very important factors, not just as a judge or a magistrate or a lawyer, but as a human being. And to remember that you are firstly a human being and then a lawyer or a judge or a magistrate. Because in understanding that concept, you allow your humanity to infuse your judgments, to infuse your work, and, and that contributes to bringing this fairness and equity in, in law. And I think it's very important. Respect encompasses the, the diversity I was talking about. You've got to respect another person's beliefs, another person's culture. You've got to understand it in order for you to be able to let that person know that you do understand it and, and infusing humanity into that gives weight to the constitution. That's what our constitution is all about. Lastly, as we close out today's session and in celebration of Women's Month, can you share a few words of inspiration or motivation that you'd like to pass on to girls and women who are listening to us on the continent? Yes, I think um, I, I spoke of mentorship earlier. If you already are in a successful position or in, in a position of authority, reach out to women who will follow you. And I, I talk about paying forward because you've got to that position because somebody assisted you along the way or you were you know, bold enough to empower yourself. Pay it forward. Share that. That recipe for success that got you where you are with those that are following, the younger ones that will follow. I think it's incredibly important to, to mentor and pay forward because in that way you're empowering not just the women but society in general. If you're young and you're starting out, look for mentorship. Look for people that have succeeded in the field that you've chosen and 
tap their brains, tap into their skills to empower yourself. And, and one thing I want to share, you know, it's a little story. When I was about 14, 15, we used to listen to what was LM radio in those days. And there was one musician who put to work, to, to music, the words of something that was called the desiderata. And at 14, we had no TV, no internet, no telephones. It was just a little uh, humble community library. I picked the librarian's brain. She thought I was mad. She hadn't heard this. And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, but don't you listen to the radio? Listen to the song. It is a most powerful song. And she, well, she just shooed me off. And about a year or so later, I was in a, a store, but you know, it's this store that sells, it's a little shop that sells everything from haberdashery to hardware to books. And it was a little like a basket with secondhand books. I used to love reading, still do. And I was rummaging through this and I found a page that looked like a scroll. And there it said, desiderata. And I could not believe it because now I had the words. That has been an incredibly powerful influence in my life. It was written in 1927 by an American lawyer called Max Ehrman. And he later became a poet. And this this was discovered, this I think, after he died, if I'm not mistaken. But it is such a powerful poem and such a powerful piece of writing. And my very favorite gift to my nieces, nephews, and grandnieces and nephews when they finish matric is to give them a framed copy of the Desiderata. You know, it, it teaches you, for me, it's based in science, it's based in philosophy, it's based in psychology, and it teaches you how to develop inner peace. It teaches you how to, to approach your daily life in a world that doesn't always treat you fairly. And what I found is that if I read it again every, say, three, four years, there's something there that is relevant to me at that stage of my life. If you have a chance, please read it. It is a, an amazing piece of writing. To this day, a copy of the Desiderata hangs on my study wall. And I read it every few years. I take a few minutes to read it. And it's amazing how relevant it is to you, no matter what stage of your life you're in. So when you're very young, start reading it. And when you're getting to retirement age like me, carry on reading it. And I, and I can say it will influence a lot of lives. It did for me. Thank you for sharing such practical words and Another thing, and I'm sharing this, is every time I have a conversation with someone, I learn something too. So thanks again for sharing, and I will definitely be um, sourcing a copy of, of the Deserato. Yes, and we have Google these days, so it's very easy. It, it is an amazing piece of writing, and I advise every young person, woman or man, to, to read it, get a copy and read it. Thank you so much, Judge Soma Naidu. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today. It's wonderful to have been here. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we have been talking to Judge Soma Naidu from the Free State Division of the High Court.